Hello once again, listener. I am delighted to welcome you to another episode of the Lancet Gastroenterology and Hepatology podcast in conversation with, I'm Hugh Thomas, the Deputy Editor. In today's episode, we are discussing a study investigating the performance of non-invasive tests and histology as surrogates to predict clinical outcomes in patients with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, or what might also be called metabolic dysfunction-associated steatotic liver disease following recent publications on nomenclature. The study itself is an individual participant data meta-analysis collating patient data and longitudinal outcomes from 25 individual studies with the project conducted by members of the Litmus Consortium. I am delighted to have the corresponding author on the paper, Dr. Michael Pavlidis, joining me today to discuss this new work. Dr. Pavlidis is a hepatologist at the Radcliffe Department of Medicine at the University of Oxford with an academic interest in non-invasive tests for liver disease evaluation, particularly quantitative MRI. Dr. Pavlidis, thank you very much for joining us today and welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Hugh. It's a pleasure to join you. Wonderful. And so to set the scene for our listeners, um, I just thought we could maybe take a bit of a historical perspective at the beginning and just talk about how liver histology arrived as a surrogate endpoint for clinical trials in non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, or NAFLD or BASLD, and, and what do we know about its prognostic performance for clinical outcomes, i.e. its performance as a surrogate endpoint? I think the first thing to say is that the, the regulators will approve treatments for any, any condition that lead to improvements in how patients feel, function, and survive. Now, NAFLD and NASH, which have now been termed muzzled and mash uh, in, in the new changing of the name, it's a very slowly progressive disease. So designing studies that will examine the effects on survival are not practical, so you would need a long follow-up. And we know that liver fibrosis and steatohepatitis as assessed on liver biopsy are accepted as surrogate endpoints in trials in this condition because they have prognostic implications. And we know this from cohort studies that show that if you have higher stages of fibrosis at baseline, then uh, that's associated with poorer outcomes uh, in the long term in terms of liver-related events and, and all-cause mortality. And this forms the basis of using histologically assessed fibrosis as, as a surrogate. In addition, the drivers of fibrosis like inflammation, ballooning, which are two key histological components of, of this disease, again have been directionally associated with fibrosis worsening and therefore improvement in this findings are deemed acceptable as well. So this is how we've arrived at histology being used as surrogate endpoint for clinical trials in steatotic liver disease. And as you discuss in the paper, the use of liver histology as a surrogate endpoint obviously has a, a number of issues that I think most people will be somewhat familiar with. Are you able to give us an overview of those from your perspective? I like to think of the issues of, of histology in, in two broad categories. The first is uh, safety and convenience issues. So a liver biopsy has a recognized risk of complications and the main one of those being bleeding. So there's about 1% risk of bleeding in, in doing a liver biopsy. The second is that it's, it's a resource-intensive procedure. So it's usually done as a day case. The person having the biopsy has to come to the hospital and usually spend most of the day in, in the hospital because there's a lot a, a, an observation period after the, the biopsy to make sure there are no complications and there are also costs involved with doing the biopsy. So it's usually expert radiologists or radiographers who do the biopsy, radiologists mainly, 
and also costs with interpreting the biopsy because you need a, a pathologist. So, and that's kind of the main safety and convenience issues. And then there are issues with the interpretation of biopsies. So there's sampling variability. So the liver is a large organ. You only take a, a tiny amount. But there's also problems with inter-observer and intra-observer variability as well as the quality of the samples that, that are taken. And, and this interpretation issues means that the studies have less power to detect change, which means that greater sample sizes are needed. And that brings the safety and convenience issues become even more prominent. Um, and, and there are some studies now showing that, you know, the, the, the issues of liver biopsy interpretation reduce the chances of seeing a drug effect by as much as 30%. So there are significant challenges with using liver biopsy as a, um, as a surrogate. And then that leads us on to the role of non-invasive biomarkers like uh, liver stiffness measurement or some of these blood-based biomarkers. Uh, and, and what do we know about their potential role as surrogates for clinical outcomes before you conducted your study? There's now a wealth of evidence examining liver stiffness and, and some of the simple um, non-invasive tests like FIP4, for example, in, in cross-sectional studies. So comparing the, the non-invasive test with histology. Some studies have examined how these non-invasive tests perform prognostically. Um, and some of the studies have undergone systematic review. But before our study, there were very, very limited data on direct comparison between the prognostic performance of histology and non-invasive tests. So I think the, the, the real addition we have here is a direct comparison in the same patients, biopsy and non-invasive tests taken at the same time and then uh, comparing how they, they perform. Fantastic. And now moving bit more closely onto the study itself. Uh, it was conducted as part of the ongoing Litmus project, which I think many of our listeners will be well aware of. Um, but for those who aren't, can you briefly introduce it for us, a bit of information about it, and really describe how this particular sub-project uh, that came about? Yes, uh, thank you. So so Litmus, as you said, is uh, it's now been running for, for nearly six years, and, and it's a big consortium of um, a number of stakeholders, including industry, academia, uh, clinicians, uh, you know, professional organizations. And the motivation for Litmus was to try and develop and, and progress towards qualification uh, biomarkers that can be used in metabolically associated liver disease. Many, as we discussed before, non-invasive tests have been generated and, and are being generated um, to help with risk stratifying and diagnosing people with um, with fatty liver disease. And I think the key challenge for clinicians, but also for people conducting clinical trials, is to identify those patients that are more likely to progress and, and develop negative outcomes in the future. Really, Litmus was established to, to test uh, all these non-invasive tests, both uh, based on serum markers, so wet biomarkers, or imaging and elastography biomarkers, what we would call dry biomarkers, and, and, and the purpose of Litmus was to conduct the unbiased evaluation of, of these biomarkers. And, and there are two prospective studies going on, which assess, one study is assessing the, the wet biomarkers, the other study is assessing the imaging biomarkers. But as part of kind of the groundwork, if you like, before starting these prospective studies and, uh, and in parallel, we wanted to do an evaluation of the literature and what is already out there. So as part of that effort, we performed 
systematic reviews of the literature to see what has already been done and then to add these prospective studies that are being conducted as part of LITMUS and then come to a, a point where we have a, a total evidence synthesis and generation at the end of it. So, yeah, so, 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 so our study fits into the literature review relating to the dry biomarkers, if you like. Moving on to the full study design then, and I don't expect to, you know, I mean, I know there's a lot of methods to discuss here and the full paper is available open access online for our readers to reference, but be able to just overview for us then this individual participant data meta-analysis approach and decisions that you made, for instance, why you chose to look at those particular biomarkers, what your primary endpoint was, key exclusion, exclusion criteria, that sort of uh, parameters. I mean, this is a effort that's, started as a, a systematic review and meta-analysis that examined, you know, again, as part of the litmus effort, we looked at magnetic resonance tests and elastography as, as broad terms, and we did a systematic review and meta-analysis. And then from that, we noticed that transit elastography, which is, you know, one, is the oldest elastography technique. There were loads of studies um, available for this um, for this technology and and we wanted to look at that in a bit more detail and we developed a, a cross-sectional individual participant data meta-analysis so we we took all those studies we we took a baseline data of elastography and and histology and we compared it we also had some basic lab tests and and demographic data and from those it was very easy to to compute fib4 and methylfibrosis scores so we thought we would include those and also um, these tests are widely available and, and also widely recommended in guidelines. So it was another reason for, for us to include them. Um, so that's how we kind of came to the choice of elastography, FIP4, and, and methylfibrosis score. And what, after we, we did our cross-sectional analysis, we thought, well, you know, there's lots of data here with concurrent biopsy and, and non-invasive tests. And we, we knew about the, the gap in the literature of you know, no data directly comparing these tests for their prognostic uh, performance. So we updated our search, found more studies, and then we reached out to all the authors of the primary cross-sectional studies and asked them if they had or if they could collect outcome data, and and some of them had or could collect outcome data, and that's how we could develop this data set, which is, is a subset of our bigger cross-sectional meta-analysis. So then, in terms of the the primary endpoint, we, we thought about that, and there are you know previous studies that have done similar assessments to us. They they used a variety of primary endpoints, but we we went to the to the FDA guidance document on for the conduct of trials in people with NASH cirrhosis, and and there they the recommended endpoint is this group is a is a composite endpoint that includes all cause mortality, liver decompensation events. So development of ascites, hepatic encephalopathy, and variceal bleeding, progression to melt of greater than or equal to 15, and liver transplantation. So we thought for our study, we wanted to use the same endpoint, but because our study wasn't a, a clinical trial, we also thought it would be appropriate to include development of hepatocellular cancer as, as part of our endpoint, which may not be relevant in, in clinical trials. So our endpoint was the one recommended by the FDA plus HCC. And 
our inclusion criteria were fairly straightforward. So get into our uh, study, participants had to have a biopsy that was done to assess uh, liver steatosis or NASH or MASH with the, with, with the new etiology. They had to have a liver stiffness measurement within six months and they had to have follow-up at least of 12 months. So anybody with follow-up less than 12 months was excluded. And we also excluded subjects who developed outcomes within the first 12 months. So to make sure that we were not including any prevalent conditions, but we only had incident outcomes. That's how our meta-analysis evolved, and that's how we defined our endpoints and inclusion criteria. I'm sure many people will be then looking to hear what happened in the results. Uh, what data did you end up collecting for the meta-analysis then? I mean, we had data from 25 studies, just over 2,500 uh, individual patient participant records. Um, 145 had reached one of the uh, components of the composite endpoint. And we had a, the recruitment period at the centers was between 2003 and 2021. And as I said, we collected data on baseline histology, baseline liver stiffness, baseline demographics, including age, presence of diabetes, and, and BMI, um, and baseline blood tests uh, to allow us to calculate the FIP4 and nephrofibrosis score. But, and, and in terms of the, the headline findings then, how did these non-invasive methods that you decided to look at, how did they compare to histology for that prognostic performance? The headline finding was that they were all similar in their prognostic performance to histologically assessed fibrosis. And, and we did this in, in, we did kind of three types of statistical analysis. So the first thing we did was to, to generate some survival curves. And we had to use some, some different methodology to account for the variability introduced by our study design, which had multiple patient groups from different centers. So uh, we needed to, um, to do something slightly different to what is reported otherwise. And in, in the survival curves, we noticed that all, all the index texts we examined, so histology, stiffness, FIP4, NFS, they all carried prognostic information. Then we compared how we, we, we did um, time-dependent area under the curve to examine the, the prognostic performance. And again, the tests had similar, so there were no differences in, in, in the AUCs between the, the four tests at the five-year time point. So the, the AUCs were, were similar. And then we wanted to see if these tests were predictors of outcomes, and we did a Cox regression. And again, we found that after um, adjusting for potential confounders, all these index tests remain predictors of outcomes. So similar uh, performance of the histology and the non-invasive tests. What implications do these findings have then, do you think, for how we consider and design NAFLD or MASLD clinical trials? And this is the first step. So in, in the context of clinical trials, this is the first step towards what I, I hope would be replacement of the surrogate endpoint. I think... It may be that first we have to use these tests to help us identify people who are at high risk of developing outcomes to prioritize them for inclusion in clinical trials before they become surrogate endpoints. But I think it's, it will provide data to support this, um, this, this change. But at the same time, you know, 
our data is an individual patient data meta-analysis. There are potential weaknesses of, of this study design, and it may be that we need bigger cohort studies to replicate our results before before we get to that point. But I think as a as a way of using these tests more to help us with, with risk stratification in, in clinical trials, it will help. And and I think eventually with, with more data coming out, I hope that I will be able to use them as surrogates. Wonderful. Uh, Dr. Pavlidis, thank you very much once again for taking the time to uh, tour us through the paper. That is very much appreciated. Congratulations to you and the co-authors for a very substantial amount of work. And we look forward to uh, seeing what you come up with in the future. Thank you very much. And uh, thank you to the editorial team for uh, giving a home to our, to our paper and, and for all the support through the editorial process and, uh, and beyond. You can read the study on non-invasive clinical outcome prediction in patients with NAFLD online now at thelancet.com. Thank you once again to Dr. Pavlidis and thank you for listening to this episode of the Lancet Gastroenterology and Hepatology podcast in conversation with. Remember, you can subscribe to In Conversation With wherever you usually get your podcasts.